panel with of CEOs in the game industry, and this is going to be not super formal. We have nothing strictly prepared. We don't have a speech to give. Uh, this is hoping to be a, uh, a back and forth, a conversation. We're going to have the question um, mic open the entire panel. So if uh, someone would like to ask a question, uh, please interject, come up and ask a question. And uh, I'm going to give some introductions, and then I will start off with my own question to the panel. So um, I'm going to ask everyone to uh, introduce themselves. Uh, we will start with myself. I am Stephen MacArthur. I run a law firm. I've been practicing for about 11 years. I have a lot of board game and video game clients. And uh, I work uh, mostly in licensing and IP issues in the game industry. And through that position, I've got to know these three uh, wonderful gentlemen. And uh, Mr. Tim Bowers. Um, uh, Tim Bowers, uh, Bowers Games. Uh, I made a couple games, Paperback, Vertical Bros, Fugitive. And I don't know, happy to be here. Uh, <clears throat> oh, I'm Patrick Leader. I own uh, Leader Games, and I'm currently acting as the creative director. I made Fast and Rude. Uh, I'm Scott Gaeta, the president, founder, owner of Renegade Game Studios, whatever. And I think I'm the only one on the panel that's company name is not related <laughs> to their So my first question for the panel, and uh, I would like to start with Scott, and then we could uh, move to his his right. right. Uh, so just briefly explain how you got where you were today, like what was your route to get to become a publisher, and in that explanation, can you please let us know a mistake you made, something that went wrong, and a piece of advice you would give to others, you know, not to make that, how not to make that same mistake. Um, so I actually started as a, as a retailer um, in 1996. I know some of you may not have been born then. It sucks. Um, so yeah, I was a hobby retailer in 1996, about two years in. My store did very, very well um, with a product from a company that's no longer in business called Decipher. Uh, we were selling the Star Wars collectible card game. We were one of the better stores in the country for them. Um, they contracted me to start uh, working on organized play and marketing programs for them, and I did that for a number of years, and eventually um, moved into the company and ran the game studio there. And I later went to Upper Deck, uh, where I eventually ran things like uh, Versus and World of Warcraft and things like that. Then I left Upper Deck and started another company called Cryptozoic Entertainment with a couple partners. Yeah. And uh, that for a number of years and got tired of it. So my background um, was in licensed products pretty heavily. So I did that for a big chunk of my career and then decided that I wanted a break from licensed products. Licensed products are awesome. You get to play in other people's uh, fleshed out worlds and sandboxes, but it's still theirs. So I decided I wanted to do stuff where we could play in our own worlds and make our own rules. And uh, then I started Renegade mistake that I made along the way, uh, I would say probably biting off more than I could chew at certain points. Uh, I get bored easily, so I definitely have an entrepreneurial background. I grew up in a family that was full of entrepreneurs. Um, I like to start things. I call them businesses within businesses. And uh, 
if you'll notice, say, at Renegade, once we got into board games, I decided that I wanted to do some role-playing games, and that's another business within the business. Uh, in the past, I have made the mistake of moving too quickly because of my personal desire to do something new and different, but not really having the support team or the infrastructure to support those things, and, and uh, really miscalculating my tolerance and projecting my tolerance for uh, just working all day and all night to do the things that I love to do and assuming that the people that work on my team are likewise. And that's not always true and it's not fair to the people on my team to assume that they're gonna wanna do the same things that I do because it's not really reasonable. So I've, I've, I've early in my career especially, I think at Decipher I had this bit of an epiphany that I can't expect everybody to be as enthusiastic about this project that I am, and especially when I'm saying, you go do this project that I just developed for a couple years, and you run with it now, because I wanna go do something new. Um, that's not fair to them, and in the end, it's not fair to myself either, because I'm selling myself short and the organization as well. So that was, that was definitely a learning experience. Um, I got into the been game design for a few years and I published two games. Um, I was working as a programmer at the um, uh, back in 2015 and I've been doing it for 16 years and I was just getting really really bored and I felt really trapped by the sort of like golden handcuffs that were available to me as a programmer. Um, I was stuck in a job that I couldn't get out of and I couldn't advance because everybody above me was going to be there for about the same amount of time I was planning on being there. And so I started getting more and more into um, publishing, and I started working on publishing at night um, from that job. I kickstarted a little game about four years ago called Trick or Treat. Made uh, $3,500 on Kickstarter, it was pretty sweet. Um, <laughs> and uh, Which I was actually really grateful for, I can say that now, uh, because if there had been a mistake, I could fix it with one paycheck instead of like going into debt to fix a mistake. And, and so I was able to learn the whole process. Um, at some point, I took over working on Bast for David Somerville, who's the creator of Bast. And um, about that time, my boss and I had a really realistic conversation about where my career was going and how I wasn't really paying attention at work anymore. Um, <laughs> so I took off. And, um, and it, it, that was really, really risky and dumb to do. Um, and, uh, you know, I had a family at the time, um, I still do. And um, <laughs> as it turns out, amazingly, and um, just just taking off like that without like a real clear um, path to go forward was was pretty risky. Um, I've worked two contracts since then as a programmer, even to make ends meet, and now we're now we're fine and I have employees and things are going well. But that was pretty risky. Um, my biggest mistake was listening to this guy <laughs> um, when we ran out of. Um, we ran out of money from the first Kickstarter, and he said, start selling pre-orders on PayPal. And, uh, <laughs> and, that, and that was a bad idea. Uh, PayPal can restrict your money uh, coming out of the account if you're doing a lot of pre-orders because they have to be able to protect their own liability in case there's a lot of refunds against that money. And I ended up in a situation where I had uh, to print games because I had to send people games, but I literally had no money left. Um, and that actually was a good mistake because it ended up spawning the second Bass Kickstarter, which did much better than the first Bass Kickstarter. We went from 150,000 on the first one to 550,000 on the second Kickstarter. So, so thanks, Tim. <laughs> I get I get a lot of people in trouble. <laughs>
yeah, Tim Powers. Um, from 20, 2005, I, did, I kind of fell in love with board games, modern board games, and, uh, and kind of decided to become a video game developer because I didn't know making board games was a thing, and kind of jumped off that cliff. But a lot of these things, like, you don't know what, you're, what you don't know, and, and I wouldn't be here if I didn't take kind of crazy risks at the beginning, risks I wouldn't take now. Um, but it, it's the path that got me here. And, and so, long sequence of events, moved to Kentucky, moved to San Diego, did all these things. Ended up uh, making indie video games, and then ended up at Amazon as a board game, as a, as a video game designer. Um, and just, it, it's, it's tough, it's tough. Like, just saying, like, once you're an entrepreneur, it's really hard to go work, work for someone again. Um, it really spoils you. Um, because part of what keeps you in a job is that, that kind of deep down fear of like, that, that was uh, how, how you handle uncertainty in your life. And a lot of people keep their jobs kind of out of, out of fear. And once you don't fear that anymore, you can get kind of reckless. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so um, I guess my, my board game path was um, why we're making video games. I started spinning up board games on the side. I went through a string of really bad relationships with Mayfair and Z-Man and Game Salute. And I'm done with, with publishers. Like, I'm, I'm done. Like, I had, I've got, a, I can give you the, the war stories. But uh, out of all that, I'm just like, I I'm gonna make a sustainable business out of this. And I'm gonna make long-term bets that are gonna get me there. So for years, I spun up paperback and Rebel Bros on the side while I was at Amazon. And then I didn't really jump to full-time until that was really under, under, underway. So, I mean, that was a more logical jump. Um, but also just, um, I, on podcasts and whatnot, I just talk a lot about direct sales and, and how to try to make a long-term sustainable business. Um, but then these guys, you know, steer me the other way, so I don't know. <laughs> I'm still figuring it out. Great. Um, that was that was really interesting. I'm, I'm going to uh, ask something following directly up on your talk about self-publishing, and I want to have a point-counterpoint. Um, Scott, I would like you to tell, as a publisher, I would like you to tell us why people should use a publisher. Tim, I would like you to give a counterpoint um, why you should self-publish. Well, I mean, right, so I don't think there's any one clear path for, for any individual. Um, it's, it's pretty rare to find somebody that's good at everything. So if you're a designer and you want to design games, I can tell you the quickest way to stop designing games is to run a company. Right? Like, the, the worst thing in the world that would happen, and we had a designer, he was brilliant um, at Upper Deck, and this guy was fantastic, and he eventually uh, wound up being a director of the game group, and he stopped designing games, because now he was managing three game design teams. It's the worst thing in the world, and I was always an advocate internally at companies like that to just keep paying game designers more so they can continue to game design, that the path to furthering their career, making more money, and being more successful, wasn't moving into a management position. It's just keep them as game designers. That's what they're really good at, and that's what they should be doing. So from my perspective, my job, um, really probably if I boil down my skill set, is I'm a producer. Um, my job is to take a game designer that has a great idea, a great design, and then find out what else needs to be brought to the table to make it a great product. Because at the end of the day, we're making things to sell to other people. Like, it, you, can, you can choose to be an artist, 
But if you, depending on how far you want your art to go, you have to make something that's viable that can reach lots and lots of people and make them happy. And the best game in the world, you, there's there's games out there that are better than almost than lots and lots of other fantastic games that we play today that we've never heard of because they've never made it. They never had a chance. They didn't have good art. They didn't have distribution. They didn't have publishing. They didn't have great development. There's just lots and lots of things that go into making a fantastic product. Um, so from my perspective, that's why you work with a publisher. I would say that there are some publishers that are probably better fits than others for different designers. Um, part of your job as a designer is to do your due diligence and not just maybe sign your game with the first person that's interested. And I get it, it's tempting. You wanna sign your game. And sometimes just getting your first published game out into the market will help you get your next game somewhere. But that, that's a choice you're gonna make. And you might not have the best experience if it's not the right fit for you. So. Um, yes, I, I, uh, but you know, to disagree with, the, with that, I think that um, I've heard a lot of I've heard lines similar to that from designers who are like, well, you know, do you want to do all these other things? Do you want to do fulfillment? Do you want to do manufacturing? Do you want to worry about, about all those things? And it's just like, well, you can do that or have a day job. Like, and I tell people, like, you got to eat your vegetables. It's like you're going to have to do unfun stuff either way. So unless you're Eric Lang, you, and, and you can literally design all the time, and, well, I think he's managing stuff now, but... but <laughs> But you know, it's like there's there's always going to be a side thing. So if, if if you you know if you want it to be your, your day job, that's fine. If you want it to be self-publishing, that's fine. Um, yeah, and, and yes, not everyone has kind of the other skills needed. Um, but I don't know. I mean, um, it, 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 I mean, what's your special victory condition, right? I mean, and I, I really ask that of people now. Like, what is you know, what is your secret victory condition that 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 you know that that you want to get to? And, you know, so I've just, I've just met different types of people. There's, there's people that just want to make something successful. And then there's an artist that's like, I have this thing that I want to share with the world. And I'm very much in the artist category. So my, my exit strategy is pine box, as they say. Like, this is, this is it. I'm just going to keep doing this because I know this is, this is what I want to do. So I'm a lifestyle company. And there's other people that are like MBA types that just want to take something and make it great. And, and so differentiating those two, um, and even if you can partner those two, those two types of people in a company, it's fantastic. But you're, you're, you're moving towards success for different reasons. And, I, and I'm finding most people fall into one of those categories, and identifying for that for yourself can really help guide your path. Great. Um, I have some questions over here. Did you want to take them? Yes, please. Uh, right up uh, at the beginning, Scott, you had said that one of your biggest mistakes was letting off more than you could chew. And I'm curious yeah. to know, when you guys have so much coming at you, mm -hmm. what are the primary drivers in terms of deciding what to, what to work on and what to, to back burner and, uh, and to prioritize uh, so that you're not biting off more than you could chew? Yeah. How are you avoiding those pitfalls? Can I, you can I answer real yeah. quick before yeah. that? Ask real quick, how many hours are you working at this point a week, do you think? Do I work a week? Yeah. I work all the time. Yeah. I mean, but this is, but I love working, right? Like, this is my passion. Like, I love what I do. When I'm not working, I'm working. When I'm walking through Disneyland with my kids, I'm looking at ways to merchandise things, right? Like, but it's, but it's fun. Like, this isn't, it's not work to me in the same way, right? Like, this isn't a grind. Right. You know, so, 
Yeah, yeah. so it's a different. All right. Yeah, because yeah. I mean that that might be the the, the other the other answer about self publishing is if you enjoy working seventy hours a week, eighty hours a week, and I do, I love my job. Um, it's not a problem for me, but I mean consider that too. So. Yeah, for sure. All right, get that gentleman. Oh, sorry. Well, so what was the question again? It was. Uh, <laughs> Oh, yeah. Not really. Uh, it's 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 certainly not how much money it's going to make in our company. Uh, it's what we're passionate about. Uh, things that we get excited about. Something that even somebody within the company is excited about. Like in general, I pick most of the games that we publish, but not all of them. There's been games where, like, we'll go to an unpub or something, and where she, Sarah Erickson, she's sitting in the audience over there. You know, and she played a game from Alex Cavern. Um, at one of the unpubs, and she really loved it. And I was like, great, you want to produce this game? And it was her first game that she got to produce and go through that process internally and do. So I wouldn't say there's an exact science to it, um, especially at this point in my life. It's more like, what do we want to do? What would be cool? Uh, what might be disruptive? What is a hole in the marketplace that there's something that's not out there? Who are the people that we like to work with? We tend to work with a lot of the same designers more than once. Um, so there's, sorry, there's no really, like there's no formula that I can give you, um, but it's whatever we feel is right at the time. Thank you, so uh, Patrick, um, you had a, in the past year or two, a, a huge success with the game Root. It's, I've, I've been reading about it everywhere. I've, I've, everyone's talking about it, people are calling it the game of the year. It's become a massive, ma from, my, from my perspective, a massive success. Really, really sick. <laughs> Can you tell us about, I just, I just want to hear about that because you, you've released a game and, and you know, you've had Vast and these other games that were, were successful at Root seems you know, on another level, like what, what, what has that been like over the past year or so, releasing a game that's gotten so much attention and uh, yeah, just tell us about that. Yeah, sure. Um, what's interesting about Root to me is the, um, and Vast, I mean frankly, but like we've, we're talking about publishing external designs, but we've gone, we've really gone into the studio and worked on how do we build, a, like our creative group, I have three other people in my creative group with me now, and how do, I, how do we as a studio build a game together and talked about and documented and analyzed that process and, and, and what we do. Um, a year ago, the guy working with my operations manager back then um, uh, gave us all a book about Pixar. And we all read the book about Pixar, and and, and we were like, we kind of resonated with, with what was going on there. And at Pixar, when they make a movie, regardless of title, like director, producer, whoever that person is, they have kind of a person that they nominate to be kind of the controller for that project. And to say, look, no matter what happens in this project, you're responsible for this. And you get to say what's going to go on with this project. And it's, I mean, it's maybe a little bit fascist model, um, but it's a business, so we can we can operate that way. And um, Cole was that. He and Cole came to the company with a ton of energy. He just got off his PhD, so he was really used to working a lot, long hours, writing a lot. He wrote those beautiful design diaries, which got people interested in the game. And and so we, you know, we sat down and hammered it out very quickly, um, and and it took off from there. Um, I, I can't believe how we're doing. Um, we printed 20,000 a year ago, uh, or like last summer, and we just printed 30,000 in there. Not even off the boat yet, and we've already sold all of them. And 
which is a weird sales metric because now we don't know how many to purchase next time we go out. But um, which, man, that's a that's a terrible problem to have. But um, <laughs> factor when to stop. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So our factor recently told us we can only do one more project for for New Year, and we're uh, we're like, ooh, uh, <laughs> now where do we go from here? So. Um, so yeah, that's 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 a little bit of what's been like. It shot up a lot. This show has helped uh, its rating shoot up on BGG. Um, we noticed yesterday. So um, I think with this next thirty thousand we'll sell, we'll probably get in the top one hundred on BGG. So I'm pretty excited about that. If you can't see it, <laughs> and it's uh, what's your booth number? Uh, two five four five. We have like a few left. We, we literally brought everything we have left in North America for root. It's it's at our booth right now, and there's less than a hundred left. Oh, wait until after the panel. Today. Yeah, yeah, please, yeah. <laughs> that guy's going. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's um, it's been a trip to, to work on it. It's uh, a lot of designers, like my previous games when I finished them, I would get them to market and I'd be like, great, I'm done playing that. If at a show someone wants to play it, I'll play it with them, but I don't play it for fun. Um, but I still go home and play Root uh, when I'm done with the day. And um, I'm actually designing the second expansion I had some creative time to free up as I moved more operations on Windows. So, yeah. I think we have, we have a question um, over here. Thank you. Uh, how should um, designers pitch to publishing companies? Uh, email, mail, send samples? I mean, I. I I'll, I'll give you the unpopular answer, like however you can get your foot in the door. Uh, and, and I'm saying this to my own detriment, because um, <laughs> I get contacted every which way. Please stop writing me at one in the morning. Yeah, I'm yeah, sorry. yeah. <laughs> you answered, that's the problem. Yeah, that, that's the problem, yeah. So I get face, I literally have gotten Facebook messages at 1 a.m. And, and I'm like, wow. In a professional environment, do you think this I've, is a good idea? Yeah. People find my phone number. Ooh, wow. yeah. And my phone number is not on my business card. That's not good. <laughs> but but I, I, I honestly don't blame any designer. Like, it's tough, right? Like, there's, I don't know, thousands of indie game designers, right, probably in North America at this point, that are trying to get their, their stuff seen. So uh, probably the better answer for me is go to events like Unpub and Protospiel and Metatopias and things like that. These are excellent events. You know, uh, designer publisher speed dating. Uh, there are lots of publishers there. Um, you just kind of have to start making relationships and, um, you know, make, making, making, making relationships and getting to your face known. Uh, personal contact is probably the best. Like, just getting stuff through email is tough. I, I tracked it last year. I had 936 cold emails sent to our website or me directly from publishers or designers that I do not know. i just saying, hey, I have something. Would you like to like to look at it. I can't respond to all of them. I mean, I apologize if you sent me an email and I didn't respond. It's just... You're lost. Huh? You're lost. It, it, it's true. I mean, it, it, it's absolutely true. Like, there's probably something in there that was absolutely fantastic. Um, it just, you know, humanly not possible to get through it all. So if you have a game, just as soon as the show's over, Mob Scott is going to be walking down those stairs over there. Most viable option for self-publishing for someone who has limited funds and resources. 
best methods for marketing for self-publishers with a day job? Um, well, in general, just when you're doing a side hustle, um, just one thing just is make sure you do it, you're doing it daily. It's like move the needle every day. You know, so every night I'd come home and, and I'm like, okay, kids are in bed. Okay, I've got two hours or whatever. I, I'm gonna, you know, and maybe I wouldn't put the whole time in because I needed to relax too. So I'd be like, okay, I'm gonna get an hour of work done and then I'd go to the next thing. So a lot of it is just moving the needle um, um, and working towards different deadlines. It's like, I'm a lazy person and I procrastinate. So I always need to have like, okay, uh, this is the night I'm gonna have my prototype ready. And then, and then, and I'm always moving towards the goal. And then once you're on Kickstarter, you have a deadline. Like you bake that into the Kickstarter and now you're committed to all these people that you're gonna finish this thing. So that's just like on the motivation side. Um, limited funds, I mean, I do a lot of um, uh, just rev share actually from, from just the, from coming from an indie world you treat yourself like a musician. This is the advice I got years ago. Was you're like, um, you when you find people to collaborate with. So as a designer, probably an artist, and and be like, okay, I can't really offer you anything, but I can offer you a cut, right? It's like I'm gonna give you a percentage of, of the of the profit on this, and I still kind of operate in that thing. So I, it was almost like an artist where I get together with someone, and, and I'm not gonna say, hey, we're gonna play my songs. We're gonna we're gonna come together. We're gonna we're gonna make something. Um, and then after that, like we might go different ways. Like we might, and so being being kind of flexible to, to not, because it's like when you start making a company, you're like, okay, we're gonna make this company and now we have two paychecks to worry about or three paychecks to worry about. And I try to stay really, really light. I'd, I'd rather be really generous with RevShare on a given project, but I don't actually give up any equity in the company. Um, it's, it's just kind of a per project thing. And then, so, so yeah, then getting art, but in general, really trying to mechanically and visually differentiate yourself. Um, it's just like, okay, this doesn't play like anything, it doesn't look like anything. Um, and, that, and, then, and then Kickstarter is still this magic bullet. I mean, you get community, you get capital, you get a market test. I mean, for what, 5%? I mean, that's, that's all you're giving up. Like, it's, it's really a magic bullet for the tabletop industry. And, and also even looking at success and failure on Kickstarter is just, you know, the market told you what they thought about it. And so you can, if you, if you didn't succeed, you know, it's like, you don't understand how the industry used to be. You had to go get a bank loan and go. Oh, you could never get a bank loan in this industry. It was impossible. You didn't, you, you could yeah. put your, okay. you could get a second well, mortgage is. on your house. That was about all you could. Or, or, or borrow from friends. Right. Yeah. Guess That's how many to print. Guess what people wanted in the marketplace. And then live with a shameful, a garage full of shame for the rest of your life. Like that was, the, that was the protocol. Uh, and so it is really good right now. So even failure on Kickstarter, we're lucky to have that. Um, but some of those problems are still s s the same. I get contacted by a lot of designers who did put their game on Kickstarter, sold X copies, published X extra copies, and have the two pallets in their garage. And they're like, what do I do with it now? It's been a year, and it's like, well, nothing at this point. Like, you're kind of stuck. So, but I wouldn't discourage you from doing that. Like, like as much as Tim and I kind of disagree on some things, like any designer that comes to me and says, I would like to self-publish, my first answer to them is right on, like do it, you should do it. And also if you need help or advice, call me and let me know. Like I'm, like. I exchange emails with Scott frequently. Yeah, yeah. Tim too, like yeah. Tim comes up to me and goes, hey, what do you think about this or whatever. Yeah, and he just, he just helped me with the problem I was having. But, and, and, I, and I do do a lot of Skype calls with, uh, more on the design side, 
But to save myself time on doing all these Skype calls with designers, I ended up making a conference. So we made a thing called Tabletop Network. We ran it last June. And we just announced we're merging it with BGGCon next year. So um, if, if on the design side, sir, so it's, it's designers only, no publishers get to come. Um, it's, uh, you asked us for money to sponsor it. No, no, I'm gonna turn down money. I'm just, I'm just saying. Like we, 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 we it's a, it's an industry. It's like here are the um, best practices on design, and we want to share this knowledge with other people. So, in, you know, so that's how I try to pay it forward is is through these types of things. So we we we're gonna continue to do that, and and uh, we, you know, we're gonna be, we'll be, you'll hear more about it. But but in general. There, there are, like in the video game industry, there's GDC where you can go and listen to talks and do workshops and whatnot. And we're trying to, to mirror that in the tabletop industry and become a mature industry and this is how we share knowledge and, 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 and whatnot. So just, I know you're not all designers, but come check it out. I really, um, to, to further on that, I think to get started, I really recommend a lot of designers, might be a little weak in this, um, practice your pitch. When you talk to somebody, if you do have a chance to talk to Scott, you don't want to stumble over what you're saying or words that you're saying. Or even, like I, I brought Vast a couple years ago to Gen Con and just showed it to people in free play. And, and you want to be able to deliver a concise, like this is what my game is about in 30 seconds to people. And I, I see that, I see people stumbling over that quite a bit. Literally practice it in front of the mirror if you have to. That's, it is what I did and, and it helped out a lot. And it, it's, it's amazing how much it helps. And the next year when I had a game in hand, I was literally able to sell one on an elevator. If you want to talk about the elevator pitch, I literally sold a game on the elevator. Also, now, take a moment to practice negotiating. Find a situation in your life you can negotiate, because you're going to have to be doing a lot of negotiation in the next couple of years. At the factory, they're going to try and run over you. Your fulfillment centers are going to try and run over you. There's a lot of places to negotiate, and you want to get really good at negotiating. And, and, and even like I'll, you know, with, with publishers, um, I know that some of the designers that we've signed games with have been kind of surprised, uh, especially guys that have been around the industry um, a while, with the way we kind of handle designers compared to the old school way. Um, you know, please don't ever sign a contract where they pay you royalties once a year. That's bullshit. Um, you know, or even twice a year. Like, I really recommend quarterly. Um, you know, just little things like that that are kind of quality of life things and just fair. You want to be treated fairly. If a publisher asks you to not show it to anybody else, that's BS. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, like, really? This guy, come on. Um, <laughs> the, the other thing I don't like as far as practices uh, with designers is a publisher sees this thing and goes, I want exclusive on this to consider it for six months. Well, then they should pay you for that. Right. Then they should pay you for that right. I never asked that. I've done it a couple times, and I've given that designer a few thousand dollars. Um, it's not fair to you. You should be shopping your game. They're going to take it off the market for six months and then maybe tell you no. Right? That's just not fair. Um, it's a point to negotiate. That's worth something. I'm not all evil, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> I had a qu question here uh, about uh, art. And Tim, you mentioned a little bit, but I think Tim especially and Patrick, I'm going to know. Uh, also, you guys have very distinct art styles with some of your recent games and Renegade, what I've seen, very strong art as well. What's At what point, I guess, do you move from designer kind of to the art and how important is that relationship? How do you find those people to make those art assets? Less about graphic design, that's important, but more that 
that visual look, that primary art asset, how do you, where do you get that and how do you find those people and make that partnership? Uh, I mean, yeah, finding the people, there's not a magic place. I mean, um, yeah, and you have to art direct a little bit, like you have to have some sense of what's different, but um, giving, when you do find a partner, however, whatever channel is through, well, giving them a little leeway to say like, what, what would you love to do? What would be something really bold? Because you don't know the domain. Like they know what's new and interesting in visual and visual looks. Um, or sometimes you find like a reference like us. We were like the the Saul Bass intro to Catch Me If You Can. We're like, okay, that's a '60s. It's it's very distinct. And we built a video game called Nowboarding off of that. And then we ended up being built our entire style off of that. Um, it, I mean, we we and he and he and he took all the influences. So a lot of times I just let Ryan go. I do very high level art direction. I'm kind of like, it's kind of what the game's about, it's the vibe we're going for. And he just, but you also have to be ready, your eyes have to be ready for it because um, part of the visual design for Burgle Bros where it's really 60s with like the, the half tone overlay and whatnot. When I first saw that, I'm like, ah, that, I mean, that's familiar, but like half of it's black and white. Like I, this is so, I mean, you have to um, kind of, you know, stop yourself the initial like this is not familiar because the first time you see it you're gonna have a reaction to it and you're gonna be like it doesn't look like what's on the market and, and you might turn it down uh, so um, I had worked with a number of artists before I got to Kyle um, on different projects and there, I have a couple games in my portfolio that are fully art that never got published because I made the mistake of buying art before I went to a publisher um, and so I, I was really used to that experience of working with an artist and I knew what to look for. Um, honestly, for an artist, more than the illustration style, commitment to the project or the ability to finish a project and however you assess that is really very important uh, when you're hiring an artist. Um, and so when David I was taking over the project, Bass from David Somerville, um, I said, who do you want to work with for the artist? Do you have any ideas? And he sent me three names. I talked to all three of them. One was too expensive. One was going to residency in Germany and politely said, I can't look at that for six months, which in artist speak is, I will never look at that. <laughs> and, um, and, then, and then Kyle responded, um, and he responded so confidently. I thought he had done a big project before. It was actually his first large project he had ever worked on. And, um, and once I saw the, the art coming in from it, I, was, I, was, uh, I fell in love with it. Uh, we actually had, um, David had built a set for Vast from Google Image Search, and we actually ended up, embarrassingly, we had an image from Kyle's DeviantArt um, in our game uh, when we showed it to him. Um, but, so I was like, whoops. Uh, so for the art direction part, which I love, uh, I used to consider a big part of my job, and I've had to move it off my desk, which I'm sad about, is we did start a document for Vast where we talked about the theme of the game, and I encouraged everybody in the company to come in, or you know, all the freelancers to come in and contribute their discussion about theme, like what did the goblets mean, what did the knight mean, what did the dragon mean? And so then we were able to work from that document as he was working on the art um, to build it. Um, and now, of course, I am so in love with Kyle's art, I put a ring on it, and uh, Kyle's a full-time employee of mine, so he doesn't work as a freelancer. Quick question for Scott. Um, under what circumstances is it okay, if ever, for someone to come to you and pitch a game and, or sorry, should they pay for art and do art before they pitch a game to a publisher? Please don't. Just never? No, just don't do it. Um, you're, it might work out, but odds are it's probably not. 
Um, there was one time recently um, where somebody brought us a game, we really liked it, and they said, oh, I've already commissioned art, and I was like, oh. <laughs> uh, and then it was an artist, uh, Asi, who, uh, uh, in Scandinavia that we've worked with before, and I was like, you lucked out, um, or we lucked out. I was actually willing to just pay out the art. Uh, we liked the game, we wanted to make the game. I was willing to pay the three or four grand that he already paid, and just eat it, and move on to something new, but it lucked out, but that's the exception, not the don't, don't do it. Use, use art off the internet, right? You don't own the rights to it. Please don't publish it. Don't put up print and plays with other people's art. That's not cool. Uh, but for the purposes of pitching, you know, somebody a game, that's fine. If you need it, uh, I don't need those visuals, honestly, when you pitch me a game. But, you know, it's, it's good. It's fun. Do you have any advice for someone who is self-publishing, who they've launched you know, a successful Kickstarter campaign? Um, trying to get into retail or getting a distributor's attention, a new publisher. Uh, any secrets of... Well, Tim's going to tell you not to do it. Yeah, where do distributors go? <laughs> How do you... I mean, you know about the cut, right? You know what you're giving up with distribution, right? Yeah. Okay, because uh, that's why I don't do it. Well, can you tell everyone else in the audience what... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, you're going to give up uh, at least 60% if you can get to a main distributor. You're going to give up 70 plus percent into you know the the PSIs of the world, um, and uh, I mean I knew that math from a long time ago, and uh, I mean I've met guys that self-published fifty thousand units a year and weren't full time, and so that that put me down this path. I'm like, okay, I need to find a, find something that's that's uh, sustainable, so I can so I can move on to this. I mean, think about that. You hear seventy percent, but what that really means is for every copy Tim sells. Scott's going to have to sell four copies to a distributor. I mean, that's that's how the numbers work out for you with 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 what you're expected to pay at the manufacturer for it, for the item. So, I mean, he can sell a fourth of the volume and still do as well. So, yeah, I, they're both viable models for sure. Um, you know, just depends on what works for you. But as, as far as how to, it's tough. So, right again. These poor distributors, they, they just went from a model where they were selling some miniatures games and CCGs and, you know, maybe a couple hundred board games came out a year to now thousands of board games are coming out a year. They, they, can't, they can't carry it all. Uh, impressions, PSI, those are consolidators that will help. So their job, and you are going to give up some of your margin, but their job is they're working with lots of small guys. And, and, and big guys too, that just that works for them the way they work. And then they take the stuff and they're one point of contact that works with like an alliance or an ACD or something like that. Uh, so that'll help. Um, I think that really a, a viable model is to set up uh, an Amazon store and become a FBA seller on Amazon and sell your stuff direct to consumer. That actually might give you a good story to tell if your goal is to get into distribution into hobby stores, you can try selling direct to hobby stores. I'll tell you that's not scalable. You're not going to sell to 2,000 stores. You're going to need staff to do that. Uh, at that point, the math probably doesn't work the way you think it does. Um, there's no tried or true thing coming to shows. Those guys are there walking around. They're looking. Um, but probably the, the best way to get their attention is to have success. Yeah. And yeah. For Fast, that's what we I mean, we went to shows, and they started coming to us and saying, we want to buy this. And it got to a volume of work where I had to hire someone to take care of it for me. Right. I was selling to retailers as much as I could. Uh, you know, if a retailer came by at a show and said, "I want to buy this," we, you know, 
we would cut out a margin between the distributor and the retailer and, and sell them direct. So I was doing a lot of direct sales and staying up until 2 a.m. every night, you know, handling the sales part. And, um, and then slowly just more and more distributors started coming in and, and now we're into all of them. So. But we still depend a lot on, you know, our business model is based around selling direct, which is Kickstarter, and selling direct through our web store versus how much we're selling to other people. And, and, and I, I have written, I've designed the business plan that way so that they're both balanced with each other. I, I, and I would say, yeah, like start a web store. Um, Sarah and I were just going over numbers from this previous year, right? Our games are out in distribution. They're on Amazon. They're, they're in, in chain stores. Uh, we still sell over 100 games a week direct to consumer on our website. Not, you know, not everybody has access to every outlet. They just want the game. They'll go to your website and buy it. Well, and, and actually, we, so we spoke like two months ago. Yeah. And I, I actually, I got on Amazon and we had a great Black Friday and we did all that stuff. But um, I'm a little protective about my customers. And so I was on Amazon before and it turns out they're not your customers on Amazon. So just, you, you will never get their emails like you will on Kickstarter. So, but I found a loophole where I can actually fulfill, which puts more work on me, but I already have a fulfillment network set up. So I sell on Amazon and then I can put a little flyer in the thing saying, hey, here's a coupon for FowersGames.com and I can slowly pull customers over so because before I was just losing customers because people would go to Amazon and they go to cool stuff and they're like well he's out of print and 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 that's not great um, and and it was kind of the secret that you had to go to Tim's website but so now I'm using I am using Amazon and I'm using direct and they've already almost balanced out right. almost or, or I'm selling about as much on Amazon as I am from my direct site but I'm able to get some I'm hoping to get some of them some people over hi guys my name is Andy I'm a writer um, you guys have significant digital backgrounds. What are some red flags that are obvious to you specifically when you consider making an iOS port of a board game? Depends on your... Uh, so we, we do this. We have, a, we have a digital partner, Direwolf Digital in Denver. Uh, they're very experienced in the tabletop space. I first worked with these guys when they were a different studio uh, on the Lord of the Rings online trading card game. They were a little five-person studio, then they blew up, Sony acquired them, and then they became something new. Um, they know the space. If you're a, a publisher and you have something that has, a uh, game designer that has some any degree of success, you're gonna start getting random spam emails out of China and all sorts of stuff from people that wanna make your game. I would say stay away from those. That would work with work with people that have a track record. Uh, I mean, the cut was, has gone from like 50% sales to like 75, 70, 75% sales on these digital, because there's some risk. Um, we do it in-house. Um, we actually brought a designer in-house, and he's part of the team now, so we do our own digital ports. But, um, and I will kind of take a loss on those, because I do believe there's a virtual cycle between people that discover it digitally or discover it analog, and then they get the other one. Um, so, but it, it can, it, yes, it can be risky. It can be hard to find somebody interested you kind of have to get to a threshold of visibility because, I mean, in Iowa, I mean, you think it's bad in this industry. You go, I mean, at the heyday, I think it was a thousand new apps a day on the App Store. I'm talking a thousand games, you know, or three, a couple thousand a year. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a whole order of magnitude. So you have to go into digital. I